Welcome to PDI, boys and girls. It's time for another public display of imagination adventure. So hop on board and shush the crowd because we're about to step inside the pages of another thrilling bestseller. And there's no telling what we might find. for the Public Display of Imagination podcast is provided by Joe King, Jayvon Fettinger, and Zachary Motes. You can find the complete playlist from Milltown Road Band on Spotify. Welcome to Public Display of Imagination, where we talk to authors about their deepest, darkest secrets, the pet they always wanted to have, the superhero they always wanted to be, and sometimes we even talk about their books. I'm your host, Mark Dwayne Combs, with any luck, no one will ever find out that you listen to this show. And if they do, you can always play that I Lost a Beck card. And now that we've got all that nonsense out of the way, let's find out who we're talking with today. Now people know when they see me coming that it's best to move aside. He's a best-selling author and journalist who's written for Vanity Fair, The New Yorker, and Time Magazine. His 1995 novel, Atlantic, which takes place aboard an ocean liner during a transatlantic crossing following World War II, was nominated for the Booker Prize, which is given each year to the best original novel published in the UK. He also authored Blood Knots, a 2010 memoir about childhood innocence, paternal love, and fishing. It was shortlisted for the 2010 BBC Samuel Johnson Prize as well as the William Hill Prize. Today's guest trained as a dancer at the Rambert School and co-authored a book with his daughter called Stars about teenagers at a performing arts school. But in 2014, 15, and 16, he published a series of books that have become the basis for a wildly popular BBC television series, Killing Eve. Please welcome our tour guide for today's adventure, Luke Jennings. Luke, such a good opportunity to talk to you. Thank you so much for setting aside the time. Great pleasure. I'm looking forward to this. In 2010, you published a memoir about a father-son relationship called Blood Knots, and I'm sure we'll dig into that a little bit later because that really caught my intrigue. In 2013, you co-authored a book with your daughter, Laura, called Stars, about teens performing at a performing arts school. Family feels important to you. Before we crack open the pages of Killing Eve and that series, talk to me just a minute about family and its prominence for you. Well, I'm married. I've got I've got three children who are grown up now, and um, Laura was eleven when we when we first started writing that book. Really, eleven? Thirteen, 13 when it was published. Wow. And um, she's at university now, so a little bit older. 
and I've got two older sons. And as I said, I've been married for married for 30 years this year. So yeah, um, family is very important to me. Congratulations on the 30 years. That's, that's really an outstanding uh, mark there. At 11, when you first started writing that book with her, I've got friends who have young children that write, and they'll be excited to hear something like that, that, you know, spending that time and investing it, that had to be quite an experience with your daughter. I'm sure you enjoyed that and look back on it very fondly. It was it was really fun. Yeah. I mean, we were talking um, in the book about kids who were a lot closer to her age than to mine. Mm -hmm. So her input was really valuable. Yeah. Right. Right now, our world is living through a unique medical landscape, something that someone might project in the pages of a novel somewhere, I guess. But certainly not anything that anyone anticipated adjusting to a reality such as this in their lifetime. As a part of the social distancing mandate that we're experiencing here in the United States, and I'm sure has been proclaimed in, in different pockets throughout Europe, kids are out of school, they're in the home, parents are out of the office, they're in the home. We're in tighter quarters for longer periods of time than we've ever experienced before. I sometimes wonder if we're not learning something new about living life together as a family, maybe something that was forgotten in the last 25, 30, 40 years. I'm sure that's true. There are there are six of us in the house um, yeah. here and two dogs. And, you know, we're, we're here pretty much all day, every day. And um, apart from going out for brief bits of exercise, mm-hmm. And you know, in other circumstances, it would be fantastic. It's an it's an opportunity to spend time together that I suspect we'll never have again. Yeah, it's amazing how we moved away from that. I'm sure if I sat and I'm, folks, I'm approaching sixty as we record this. I'm sure if I sat and talked with my mother, she would tell me about life with her parents, and she had seven brothers and sisters. She was one of eight, and. I'm sure she would say, yeah, we used to spend a lot of time together in the home and around the home. That's something we've kind of grown away from, but our circumstances as we're living them today have kind of pushed us back toward those things and discovering some new things about each other and maybe finding out a way to love our family and to cherish our family just a little bit more. Speaking of family, we're going to talk about a young woman who's of Russian heritage. She became one of the world's most highly skilled assassins. Luke, let's meet Oksana Varantsova, codename Villanelle. Introduce us to her, if you would. Well, she's a, she's a child, if you like, of the post-Soviet chaos. Her mother's died as a result of um, the Chernobyl disaster. And so she grows up in a literally and metaphorically toxic country into um, into a country torn apart, and she is very poor. Her father is a soldier, and she has a personality disorder, so she appears to have not much going for her at the outset. Mm, challenging times. You said in the backdrop of the Chernobyl disaster, that had to be something that no one really knew what to expect as it unfolded. And 
what landscape kind of would be left afterwards. I, that, I think that would be an extremely challenging time to grow up in. Yeah, well, her mother dies when she's six, and um, and she bounces between a series of orphanages that her father puts her into when he's campaigning in Dagestan and Chechnya. Mm. Um, so this is, you know, this is this is a hard upbringing, and she has an antisocial personality disorder on top of all this. Right, right. Then her father gets involved with some gangsters. They kill him because they think he's cheating them, and she kills them. And so our story starts with her on remand for murder in prison in in the Urals. So her first kill is actually a revenge killing for her father, who loses his life. And that's an interesting way to draw her in that and how she responds to that. I guess her first taste of what her life is going to be like going forward in some aspects. Well, she's immediately arrested and she she ends up in, in jail, as I said. And as far as she she knows there isn't going to be much life beyond that. And then a man named Constantine appears and makes her an offer and everything changes. Mm. Constantine's a part of a group, um, a shadowy group, so to speak, known as the Twelve, if I remember correctly. They see potential in her and train her for a specific purpose on their behalf? They see potential in her. They've seen her psychological evaluation they know what she's done they know also that she has absolutely nothing to lose at this point Mm. and so she is um she is ripe for training and and turning to their purposes how did she get on their radar i mean is this something that a group such as that would keep watchful eye over those that traffic in and out of the system i think the soviet system in the old days, was always very good at talent spotting, whether it's for sportsmen, footballers, scientists. And in this case, um, you know, it's it's a kind of extension of the old KGB and the, the secret services. You know, they, they find people who are, who, who are good at what they need them to be good at. And Oksana is very good at this, it turns out. Mm. And if if she wasn't any good at it, well, what would they have lost? You know, <laughs> that's an interesting way of putting it. They find people that are very good at what they need them to do. And this growing up period of years, she's still relatively young when she starts out with them. For the most part, her targets are assignments for her. But the craft of the of the kill itself feels like it's kind of left up to her discretion as to how she gets the job done. Am I reading that correct? That's right. They know she's smart. She's a linguistic student scoring very highly at university at the point at which she's actually arrested for murder. And she is brilliant with languages and she has uh she she has a first rate memory. So she's she's very smart and she also has a strong sense of preservation, so she needs to get in there, do the task and vitally to get out again. Does she find that she enjoys it? I mean, I get a sense as the story begins to blossom and unfold that she's kind of having, for lack of a better term, a emotional growth spurt in her life in, in some ways that she's being experienced 
or being exposed to something that she's never experienced before and it resonates with her in some way she she likes being good at what she does mm. and she is she is a psychopath and so she has grandiose tendencies and, and very grandiose ideas of herself which Constantine feeds telling her that she's an instrument of destiny that she's she's necessary that she's exceptional that she's special that she's different all of these things and she absolutely is ready to believe this and so she gives everything to this job of killing people and she doesn't ask why because she assumes that they they have their reasons and that's good enough for her and so i said she's she's a psychopath she struggles to feel she mm. struggles to um she is unable to emp empathize or feel guilt but murder makes her feel it resonates for her and while she's struggling to feel that sense of approval in someone else's eyes has to resonate with her as well it sounds very much so yes she she needs to see herself reflected in somebody else's approval mm. the thing with psychopaths including high achieving psychopaths like her is that there isn't a sense of self when you take away all of the all all of the outer layers and the um there's nothing underneath it it's an absence not a not a positive thing and so she's always she's always building up her own self-image through fashion through indulgence through sex through killing through the approval of others through through the gaze of others so um she loves fashion for that reason not because she wants to attract people but because she wants to be visible she wants to be seen she wants to express herself and kind of form a personality around her like um like a kind of carapace mm. it's interesting i think if we went back in the field of study 25 or 30 years we would have been told and informed and it would have been quote unquote documented that the psychopathic personality the sociopath traffics in one particular realm that seems to always pertain to violence but in the world we live in today we find that we also have those who hit a lot of the markers of that same profile but they're leaders within certain aspects of the community because of the markers that they hit within that profile and that seems to make that whole diagnosis of things a really open-ended thing that we thought we understood that maybe we really don't i think we thought we understood it partly because the tests were done a lot of them on male psychopaths who mm -hmm. have been imprisoned for crimes of, of violence and usually and so i think there was a certain amount of assumption that this was the whole picture of the psychopathic personality um, it wasn't until much later that psychologists, I believe, started looking in detail at female psychopaths and their behavior and non-violent psychopaths, the kind of people who run the major corporations that we rely on for so much. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Those that are really making some of the biggest, most important, toughest decisions are doing so 
in the same manner of hitting a lot of those same psychological markers. Things seem to be rocking along pretty smoothly for Villanelle um, until the completion of one particular assignment. There's a Russian politician that's been put on her radar, and this kind of serves to put her on someone else's radar. Connect those dots for us and introduce us to Eve. Well, Eve is is really the opposite of Villanelle. If Villanelle is is the kind of deal with the devil that really most of us would not make, Eve lives the life that one way or another most of us do live in that it's chaotic, it's messy, it's affectionate, it's um, it's largely unplanned. She 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 struggles to get get her day's work done and to uh, make her marriage work and so she is she is a kind of every woman type but there is something inside her which Villanelle in the course of time will recognize which draws her to this very dark world of psychopathy and murder intellectually and so she has been quietly investigating a series of murders and coming to certain conclusions. Now, none of this is um, particularly relates to her work directly, but um, she is fascinated. She is drawn in to Villanelle and her activities. At first, she's horrified, then she's fearful, but a kind of fascination comes out of all of that. Did they start out as contrasting black versus white, um, yin versus yang, total opposites? And then as they clash, some of the things that they share in common tend to bubble to the surface? I think, yeah. I mean, they, I mean not, they were not intended to be precise opposites, but they were supposed to be antagonists. Mm-hmm. But any pursuit becomes, becomes intimate in a way and and that's what happens and Villanelle who is very smart who sees in Eve what Eve doesn't see in herself which is which is a, a slice of of ruthlessness if you like that is um that is like Villanelle Villanelle recognizes that sees that that while Eve considers herself absolutely the antithesis of Villanelle in fact there are things that she has in common and she's not really willing to see that. It it sounds like the old instance of someone getting an impression of someone else and saying, I see you in this manner, and that other person saying, yeah, but that's not me. You're not seeing me. You're seeing what you want to see. You're casting a, a role on me that you want me to fulfill, but that's not really who I am. And it seems like that maybe Eve is fighting with that struggle back and forth as to is she what Villanelle is seeing in her, or is she what she believes herself to be? Is she is she working through a period of self questioning and self doubt as this thing unfolds? I think she is. I mean, I think as you go through, as you go through the three novels of the trilogy, mm-hmm. this, this struggle is always playing itself out in Eve. It's always trying to be reconciled and never quite being reconciled. Because there is a very repressed part of Eve that um, does not with ease come to the surface. But of course, Villanelle sees it. And there's, there's a side of Villanelle that is, um, that is socially 
not inept, but socially undeveloped. And in order to to communicate with Eve, in order to have a kind of meaningful relationship with Eve, she also has to develop. She has to develop something that is in Eve, that is in her, that is like Eve. She has to find, if you like, her a, a self and a, a heart. This is kind of a catch-me-if-you-can game that seems to really appeal more to Villanelle from the very outset than to Eve. I get the impression that she enjoys being chased, and she enjoys finding out more and more about who's chasing her. That's of intrigue as well. What made that aspect of the story really something that you wanted to dig into, wrestle with, and explore? Well, I was I was very interested in the idea that a pursuit always becomes ambiguous. A pursuit becomes a courtship. It's who is actually pursuing who. It seems to Eve that she is pursuing Villanelle, but actually we begin to see that she's putting herself in positions where her life connects with Villanelle's. And you start to question, although she doesn't, until after we do exactly what it is that she is that she is trying to pursue is she investigating the 12 is she investigating the murders or is she just chasing villanelle because she wants to learn something about herself mm. i mean all of those questions were ones that i wanted to play with and, I, and that i wanted readers to ask themselves as they progress through the novels it's interesting as I dig into spy thrillers, they're often built around that cat and mouse chase. It's usually technical, though. It's usually about solving some puzzle, unraveling some knot in the tail. This has a personal feel to it. Like there's a relationship, there's an appeal, there's a measure of, there's a measure of fun and playfulness. Is, is Villanelle somewhat happy to be chased by Eve? I, I've got to ask that question. She's somewhat intrigued that someone is chasing her. She's she loves the attention. Yeah. She's bored. She's she's got a a very clever mind, but like most psychopaths, she's very easily bored. She wants something to fill her days and to give them meaning. And Eve seems to offer this. And Eve is always there. She's always a step behind. And so it's it's irresistible to Villanelle. She loves it. She loves the attention. And She's increasingly fascinated by Eve. She thinks she can just destroy Eve, own her, but she can't. There's something about Eve which which resists her attempts to, to nullify her. Eve keeps coming, and, and that fascinates her. She's reckless. Villanelle is reckless. She doesn't want to be bored, and so she will initiate this chase. She will... She will lure Eve onto her, onto her tail because she's she's bored. She wants something to do. Characters and character development. We're going to dig into both and find out just a little bit more about Villanelle and Eve in our next segment. My guest, Luke Jennings. We're talking about the Killing Eve series. You don't want to go anywhere, folks. We'll be right back. This is Zoe Sharp the author of Bones in the River, and you're listening to Public Display of Imagination with your host, Mark Dwayne Coons. I used to dream that I was a king, and 
This podcast is made possible by the generous support of those who have become friends of the show through Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash P-D-I and become a valued part of the show. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash P-D-I. Your support moves that needle. We're at the midpoint of this week's adventure, and there's more great conversation just ahead. But I wanted to take just a brief moment to thank those of you who are podcast subscribers and those of you who help support the show. We love bringing these conversations your way, but without support from our podcast listening family, it just wouldn't be possible. One of the best ways you can show your support for the show is by using the links to Amazon found throughout the Public Display of Imagination website. Whenever you use one of our links to go to the Amazon site, we get a small percentage of override on your purchase, whatever it might be. So if you clicked on a book title, but end up purchasing vitamins for your spouse or a vintage slot car racing set for the kids, well, your purchase just helped the show because you used one of our links to get to the Amazon site. So if you're going to Amazon, please let us be your doorway. Another great way you can show support for the show is by checking out the Sendable Social Media Management Tool. If you're an author, a publicist, a publisher, or anyone who uses social media to help promote your business, I promise you, you will not find a more useful application anywhere. Like Amazon, we've got links to Sendable on almost every page of the website. Click on it and take a free 14-day test drive on us. We've been using Sendable for over a year, and I couldn't recommend it more highly. One last thing. Don't forget to check out the host page for this adventure. I realize that you're probably listening to the podcast via iTunes, Google, iHeartRadio, Spotify, CastBox, Deezer, or one of a host of other podcast listening platforms. The adventure host pages on the public display of Imagination webpage are where you're going to find direct links to the author's their books, and their social media pages. You'll also see a link to the Inside the Writer's Workshop segment that we recorded with today's guest. We just uploaded that to the Public Display of Imagination YouTube channel. It's always one of my favorite segments, and we're excited to bring these personal author guest insights your way via the YouTube channel. So I hope you'll check out Public Display of Imagination on YouTube and explore all of our fantastic Inside the Writer's Workshop conversations. Now, let's get back to this week's PDI Adventure. This is Robert Tagoni, the author of the Tracy Crosswhite series, and you're listening to Public Display of Imagination with your host, Mark Dwayne Combs. All right, we're back. My guest, Luke Jennings. We're talking about the book series, Killing Eve. Luke, I know for every author that they have to have a presence online. I've visited your website. I know you're also active in a couple of places on social media. If someone wanted to follow you a little bit more closely, maybe see what you're working on, maybe even reach out with a question that they came across in one of the books, 
What's the best place for them to follow you online? I'm on Twitter at, at LukeJennings1. And then, of course, the website. And folks, we'll have links to those so you can get right to them. Uh, from the host page of this, we'll also have links to the books uh, and, and other things that Luke has produced. We closed our opening segment talking about the attitude and the outlook of Villanelle somewhat. I've heard people ask the question of whether or not the antagonist in a story can be a likable, good guy sort of character. Most would immediately say no. The antagonist, by definition, has to be the villain in the story. Villanelle is an assassin for hire, which would seem to cast her as the antagonist. But she's extremely charismatic for a lot of different reasons. She's somewhat lovable in a lot of ways. Can she still be the antagonist, or does that take her out of that role? Well, I just wanted to see how appalling I could make her and yet have people still, you know, still love her in a way. And she is appalling and she does terrible things, but people do love her. And I think people identify with her in a way. So that was, you know, I I wanted to, to kind of play that game and see how how dreadful I could make the things that she does and still, you know, some part of the reader hangs in there and, and, and is remains fond of her. So I think people do. I think there's something in her personality that it comes out in the books. And of course it's portrayed well in the BBC series that kind of makes her winsome. It's, it's like, you know, I don't know that I want my children to grow up and follow in her footsteps but she seems to be happy about life and she seems to also have a zest for life in many ways yeah i think she's i mean she is a she is a life force Mm -hmm. and um you know she didn't ask to be born a psychopath right um it's a condition and um she is turning it to her own ends one way and another and she is she is not being defeated by it. We learn um, a lot of things as we're growing up, but one of the things that she's learning is she's learning how to feel, and that's something that most of us don't really, I guess, have a grasp that we learn how to feel certain things because we don't know what it's like to not feel. I think that, I think that's right, absolutely. Whereas somebody like her goes through their life mirroring people, learning emotions, learning social interactions, which don't come naturally to them, Mm. are very difficult for them. Um, And society is full of functioning psychopaths who have learned all of these things, mastered them, and live as near as possible, you know, ordinary and productive lives, and they fall in love, and they get married, and they do all these things. Um, Psychopaths are not the for for a long time they became these fictional characters on whom you could unload any kind of evilness right uh, because they were without evil without limit mm-hmm. but I think villanelle i I wanted to make more complicated than that more more layered and and do, in a sense more believable um as somebody who does engage with life, does have friends and is attracted to people and is a psychopath, and not only a psychopath, but a, a homicidal psychopath, but ne- but nevertheless is a fully realized human being rather than a um, 
rather than this kind of slightly caricatured figure of evil, this kind of gargoyle, sinister figure who is capable of, of absolutely anything. I think it's this fully realized human being part that's the part that shines through in this entire story. Often someone says psychopath and we immediately get a stereotype and think that's the black hole that's fully void of all emotion. Let's talk character templates for just a moment. Is it good for an author to have a character personality to work with that that says at the core this character is XYZ? But is it also good for that author to take a sledgehammer to the stereotype and rearrange all the pieces after they've smashed it? Well, I think there's been a tendency in in the past, perhaps, to use the psychopath stereotype as a one-size-fits-all evil being Mm -hmm. who could be responsible for anything, no matter how, how terrible, how inhuman... So, in a sense, loses all humanity, and so we in a, we, we we're less interested in this person because they're not fully rounded. Because, of course, psychopaths have there is an absence there. There is a lack of of empathy, of guilt, of various other of, of various other abstract qualities like this. But that doesn't mean to say that they aren't capable of developing themselves as individuals, of evolving, of being multi-layered, of being complex, of of being resolved characters, as, as opposed to simply, um, as you say, these kind of black holes into which all negativity can be poured, who are simply the foils for the much more interesting pursuer, detective, antagonist, whoever. I think science would bear that out for us as well. This whole idea that one size fits all. Once you've seen one, you've seen them all kind of thing. Because the sociopathic profile science as neuropathy and and brain study has progressed over the last 10 to 15 years has told us that that sociopathic profile plays itself out in a variety of ways where they are functioning in society as leaders in other aspects that we might have otherwise never thought they fit into that role. Well, absolutely. I believe that, I mean, I have no scientific background at all, but I do believe that a lot of the case studies into psychopathy were conducted with male offenders. Mm -hmm. So not only were these people um, entirely 100% male, but they were people who were, in a sense, self-selecting in that they had committed serious crimes. And there's been much less research done into female psychopathy, and particularly high-functioning female psychopathy in domestic situations and in the workplace, etc. So, you know, we we cannot make the assumptions that we used to make about psychopaths that it is a thrown switch, a um, you know, a, a black and white situation. It isn't. Um, I, I talked to um, one person in particular who actually has this condition has written a book about it called Confessions of a Sociopath, and she described to me in some detail uh, her complex 
psychological states, how, how they vary, um, what she has to struggle against, how she, the compromises she has to make, etc. Of course, there are extreme homicidal psychopaths, I mean, the Ted Bundys and, of this world, but there are infinite shades of grey between that and functioning psychopaths in the, in the home and in the workplace. As we found out in our first segment, it's after the assassination of a Russian politician that Eve comes into the picture. This feels like where in a typical story we might see the good guy chase the bad guy play out as a thread through the rest of the novel. Did you wrestle with the tendency of Eve becoming that good guy chase the bad guy role or was it important to you to find balance between the two so that you could continue to focus on the relationships as opposed to just a stagnant car chase so to speak? Well I was looking at this from the start as a relationship Mm -hmm. rather than simply a kind of technical literary antagonism so if you look at it as a relationship and you wonder where it's going to go you see the two of them as happens i think in most intense relationships taking on aspects of of the other's character and discovering aspects of the other's character inside themselves Mm -hmm. so they they both have journeys to make in this respect in accessing eve discovers a repressed part of herself that is immediately apparent to villanelle and villanelle has possibly a a harder journey in finding within herself over over the course of the three books the humanity that will if not redeem her at least explain her and lift her from what what one might call this this sort of unmitigated state that she is closer to at the start of the books. Mm. So as I said, each discovers in the other repressed parts of themselves that in order to understand each other, they have to develop these characteristics within themselves. I almost get the sense with Villanelle that light bulbs are being turned on for the first time And she's trying to understand all of that. At the same time in Eve, some light bulbs are being turned on as well. And she's trying to turn those off because she really doesn't want to go there. She's she's very scared by what she sees in herself and what she realizes that Villanelle sees in her. Mm. And Villanelle thinks to herself, well, I've... You know, I've done just fine as I am up to now. And she looks around her and she has everything that she thinks she wants. But the one thing that she can't have as things stand is Eve. So she realizes she has to she has to make a journey of accommodation, too. Yeah. Do you, do you feel like because a lot of people really relate to this series, not only through the books, but also through through the uh, BBC TV series, do you feel like it's because we as the viewer, we as the reader, see ourselves in one of these two characters, or perhaps we see parts of ourselves in both? Maybe we do. I mean, I think there is, we're probably all of us on a sliding scale between the two of them somewhere. Um, 
the the way that I originally conceived it was that Villanelle, of course, is, has committed to this Faustian bargain where she can have all the material goods that she wants, everything, the fabulous flat, everything, and financial security forever. But in return for this, every so often, she has to kill somebody, and she's fine with that. So that's that's a deal she can make. But most of us don't make these kind of accommodations. We, we do not and cannot accept these Faustian bargains. So we're much more like Eve. We're, we're struggling to get along because we have a sense that some things are just too wrong to do. And life, in a sense, takes advantage of us for this. Life is harder. We, you know, we, we, we do long jobs that perhaps don't interest us, as like Eve does. We burn the toast. We struggle to get along. We have, we have clothes that, that are practical rather than beautiful. We have imperfect marriages, etc. Um, so Eve, I think, is Eve takes up the, the slack. I mean, none of us really, very few of us, would want to be Villanelle with all that that involves. Although we may, we may envy parts of her lifestyle and her persona. But when it comes to it, Eve is what we settle for. I think of the premier athlete when you describe that, who says, this is what I want, and I'm willing to sacrifice whatever it takes to get what I want. And there's no, um, uh, to this level, maybe. No, there's, I'm willing to sacrifice whatever it takes to get what I want. And I feel like in some instances, Villanelle it's kind of, as you said, willing to make that deal because she doesn't feel like she's giving up so much of her soul. And Eve, on the other hand, feels like that she's protecting her soul at all costs, even if she's not living the life that she really wants to live. There's a couple of handlers in play here. We mentioned them in the first half, and I kind of want to pinch them on the cheek here in our second segment as well. There's a handler for each, Villanelle, and for Eve, but I'm always curious how much the handlers believe they're in charge and how much they actually are in charge. That seems to be a play back and forth throughout the, uh, throughout the series. Yeah, I think um, you, you get a situation when people have secrets that power imbalances are happening all the time because as secrets are acquired, so, so power is acquired over other people. And Eve is being is being handled by Richard Edwards, the, um, the MI6 guy. But as she comes to know more about him, so she, so their relationship changes. And it's the same with, it's the same with Villanelle. She is notionally being handled by Constantine at the beginning, but, you know, she outgrows her parent, if you like, and, um, she moves on. And Eve moves on. Both of them move on by the acquisition of power over the people around them. Luke Jennings, ladies and gentlemen. Luke Jennings, today we've talked mostly about the books in the Killing Eve series. Codename Villanelle is book number one. But we also mentioned Stars, a young adult book series Luke writes with his daughter, Laura. And Blood Knots, which was a father-son memoir I've ordered that one. I can't wait to read it. Links to his books, as well as his social media pages, are posted on the host page for 
this adventure at publicdisplayofimagination.com. Pick up a copy and start your journey. Luke, this has been fascinating. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me on the show. Thanks, Mark. It's been a real pleasure. Both Villanelle and Eve learned to handle their handlers. But did they surprise Luke as the storyline developed? We dig into that very question in our special Inside the Writer's Workshop segment on YouTube. And I hope you'll join us there as this conversation continues. You can listen to that special YouTube segment right from the host page for this adventure at publicdisplayofimagination.com. You'll also see book summaries on the host page and find hot links to Amazon for many of the books we talked about over the course of our conversation. I enjoyed talking with Luke about his work, and we're glad we could bring this podcast conversation your way. Please don't forget to give us a rating and a review, and remember, the light at the end of someone's darkness may be you. Music for the public display of Imagination podcast is provided by Joe King, Jaybone Fettinger, and Zachary Motes. You can find the complete playlist for the Milltown Road Band on Spotify.